again, this is Pinky, and when Brain and I are not taking over the world, we are listening to the great, big, beautiful podcast. <laughs> well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... My wife and I were traveling in South America, and we were in a car with a guide and a driver. The guide said to me in English, you know, uh, uh, what do you do? I said, I'm an actor. Oh, well, what movies have I seen you in? And uh, the driver said, what movies in Spanish? Mm-hmm. And she translated the movies, and it didn't translate at all. He didn't recognize them. So I said, well, ask him if he ever watched cartoons. So she said to him in Spanish, do you watch cartoons? He said, oh, yeah. So I went, <laughs> he almost hit the curb. He swerved <laughs> so hard to the right. Here's your host, Jamie Green. Welcome to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com. You can find us on all the socials at thegbbpodcast. You can find us to download from anywhere that you get podcasts. Pretty much anywhere that you can download a show, you can find us there. I'm your host, Jamie Green. You can find me at The Roarbots, and welcome back to another week. It's great to have you back. Uh, This week is another Just Me Solo. But I am thrilled to finally bring you guys this conversation. This is a conversation that I've been sitting on for a while just because I've had other things, um, other interviews that needed to get out first because of time issues and schedules and whatnot. But I talked to Alan Oppenheimer a while back in preparation for an article that I wrote for Sci-Fi Wire. Uh, One of the many sites that I write for is Sci-Fi Wire. And I uh, did a fairly in-depth, comprehensive, uh, quote-unquote, oral history of He-Man and the Masters of the Universe, the the uh, original filmation show, uh, incarnation of that of that show. And as as part of that, I talked to a number of people involved in the show. Uh, some of them uh, over the phone, some of them Skype, some of them just over email. But I had the opportunity to sit down with Alan and talk to him for about 45 minutes, uh, mostly about his time on He-Man. But we do touch on a few other things. This was just a pleasure because if you if you are a regular listener to the show, you know that we've had a number of actors who have worked in animation and many of them have been involved in so many of the of the shows and the movies that I love. Uh, you know, we've had Rob Paulson, Maurice LaMarche, Bill Farmer, so many great, great actors. Uh, Alan, though, where do you even start when you talk to, when you're talking about somebody like Alan Oppenheimer? He was the voice of Skeletor, obviously. This is, this is what he is probably best known for. But just even on that He-Man show, he was also Man-at-Arms. He was Cringer and Battle Cat. He was Merman. He he was countless other background characters or just one-off characters who came through and said a couple lines. But he was so much more than that. And and one of the show, one of the movies, excuse me, one of the movies that I adored as a, as a kid 
and still I have a soft place in my heart for it, was the never-ending story. And Alan is the voice of Falcor. And that the the luck dragon in 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 the never-ending story is probably one of my favorite characters from the 80s. <laughs> and it's it's that movie, you know, you watch it now, especially if you've never seen it before, if you watch it now, you don't really understand what the big deal is. It doesn't age that well if you don't have the history with it, if you don't remember watching it when you were a kid. But I do, and that movie I adore, and I still love it. And Alan is the voice of Falcor. So I couldn't help myself in this conversation. I do geek out a little bit about Neverending Story, and we do talk a little bit about Falcor. But if you go to Alan's like IMDb page and you just scroll down back to the 80s, if you grew up in the 80s and you watch TV, you you probably heard so much more of Alan Oppenheimer than you realized. Yes, he was... Uh, several main characters on He-Man, but he was also in the Wuzzles. He was on Transformers. He was in the original Ghostbusters. He was in Centurions and Rambo. And these weren't one-off characters. He had recurring roles. He was on dozens and dozens of episodes of each of these shows. Um, he had, you know, he came back and he was many voices in She-Ra. You know, he was Skeletor on She-Ra, but he was also many other background voices. He was on Brave Star. If it was a filmation show, it's almost guaranteed that he was involved with it. But so many shows that you probably remember watching when you were a kid and and maybe have fond memories of. And he was absolutely involved. He was critical. And today, I mean, he has embraced that. So many of his fans are fans of the work that he did back in the 80s. And he is a regular fixture at, at, at Comic-Cons, at conventions. And he is just the sweetest, nicest guy. He is so approachable. He is so friendly. He is so happy and willing to talk about his time, even though it was going on 40 years ago. Um, and 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 I'm just thrilled to have to, to be able to share this conversation with you guys now. If you missed the oral history that I wrote for Sci-Fi Wire, I will link to it in this post. So I don't know where you found the episode, but go find us on thegbbpodcast.com and you can click on this episode and you'll have the link there. Or you can just go to Sci-Fi Wire and do a search for oral history, He-Man, something like that, and it'll show up. And in the weeks that come, I'm going to be bringing you a couple more of those conversations too. So if you're a fan of He-Man, do stick around, hit subscribe, and there will be a few more conversations relevant to that show coming up in in future episodes in future weeks. But until next week, uh, thank you guys for coming back week after week. Thank you for hitting subscribe. Thank you for telling everybody about us. And uh, thank you for listening. I am Jamie Green. You can find me at The Roarbots. You can find the show at The GBB Podcast. And here is my conversation with the great Alan Oppenheimer. Take care. Why do I surround myself with fools? Even the robots are smarter than you. I wanted to ask a little bit. Before we get to He-Man and, and Skeletor in that part of your career, but you had a long, successful acting career uh, in live action before you even began in animation. What led you in that direction to begin with? Well, I had a long theatrical career very close to you at Arena Stage in Washington. I know it well. And I was there 10 years, from 54 to 65, did 60 plays. I was the best, the best part of my career. I loved it. And then I uh, went on the road, and I wound up here. 
in uh, California. I've been here since 1966. And I started doing uh, immediately. I started, I was booked for TV and also a theater at the Mark Taper Forum. And then uh, I, I started doing cartoons, I believe, in the 70s mm-hmm. with uh, Hanna-Barbera. And then I auditioned for uh, Heat Man, uh, yeah, Mess of the Universe in uh, 80-something with uh, Lou Scheimer, who it turned out, later on I found out that we both went to Carnegie Tech at the same time. Really? I was on the first, I was on the first floor as a drama student. He was on the second floor as a painting and design manager. Huh. We found this out later on. We also found out we were dating the same girl. Like at the same time? Times. No, at different times, thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, that was my first show at Filmation was uh, He-Man. And then I, I, did, I did everything at uh, Filmation after that based on the success of He-Man. Yeah. I, I've, I've talked to a number of... Uh, actors who work in animation and for voiceover and they say that once you get into the into the industry it's 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 gravy because you know once you're in and have proven yourself it's relatively easy to get work but they say that it's also it's just great work because you can show up in whatever you're wearing you don't have to the makeup if you're a woman doesn't have to be good your hair can look like whatever you want and uh they say just get in the booth and do your thing and it's it's one of the best jobs out there it is no memorization. It's marvelous, <laughs> and and uh, and uh, they trust you. After a while, you know they don't. You don't even audition. They just uh, okay. You look at this as the part and say okay. Oh, I see the cell. I see what he looks like. Yeah. Well, I got an idea. What do you think of this? And they say yes or no or tweak it a little bit that way or this way. Oh, it's great and it's great fun working. I found that the people I worked with in animation voiceover were about the best people that I've ever worked with in the business. Yeah. I mean, they were good actors. You can't just be a, a stage or film actor and do this. You have to have a knowledge of, kind of a knowledge of radio. Oh, sure. Uh, to, to be able to do it. They, you know, nowadays, they'll, they'll make a movie of, uh, of a successful uh, cartoon, and they'll cast it with uh, marquee names for movies, and most of those people have no idea how to read a script without there being on camera. Right. And so it, it's uh, it's flat, the timing is wrong and all of that. There are some people who can do it, but damn few. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're, we're kind of an exclusive club, and uh, we like it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Try to keep the rules for I've yourself. I've worked in every medium in this business except the circus. <laughs> and why not the circus? And I, I guess they didn't want me following the elephants. You know, <laughs> you know that joke. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think it's it's fair to say that Skeletor is one of your most popular characters. And as much as I love that character and 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 He Man in general, my my favorite of your roles has to be Falcor from the Neverending Story. It's just got a, it's it's a soft spot in my heart. I just adore the character. I adore the movie. But I wanted to ask you. Of the hundreds of characters that you've voiced or played over the years, are there any that you wish had gotten just like some more exposure? Maybe you didn't play them as much as you had wanted to. You kept meaning to return to, but never had the opportunity. I can only think of one. It was a Disney series called, um, uh, God, what was it? Uh, 
I'm looking at the cell right here that I have. I played Rhinoki. They were a combination of animals. I was a combination of a Rhinoki, of a monkey and a rhinoceros. Okay. Um, I, I can't even remember the system. But Disney canceled it after the first year because the toys weren't ready. Oh. And it came out at the same time as Gummy Bears, and their toys were ready. Uh, oh, uh, the, 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 uh, oh God, it'll come to me in a minute or two. Anyway, I thought it was a great series. We had a great cast and, uh, it only lasted a few episodes. That's the only one I can think of off the top of my head here yeah. that I wish had gone on longer. Is it- By the way, I love the never ending story. I love it. <laughs> well, who doesn't? I mean, it's just a, it's a classic. <laughs> And not only did I do Falcor, I did The Rock Fighter and Gamork, mm-hmm. and the narrator. I did four parts for the one price. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I, it's I, like... got to, I, got to, I got to Munich, and I finished the, the job, and, and uh, I, I said to Wolfgang Peterson, well, thank you very much. He said, oh, by the way, could you look at this character as a rock fighter and see if you could do it? <laughs> so I wound up with that. I said goodbye a second time. He says, oh, there's another character, Gamork. I looked at that, and then I wound up doing also the wolf, uh, yeah, and the narrator at the end. Yeah. So oh, I hope they paid you four times. I, what? I hope they paid you he four times. He didn't pay me four times. He paid me one time. <laughs> You're <Well>, too kind. <laughs> yeah, no, but I love the movie, and it's uh, and it is the, those two characters, Falcor and Skeletor, are the most popular at the conventions when I go. Sure. Sure. Um, yep. I, I think the show that you, was it the Wuzzles, the show that you were mentioning before? Wuzzles, thank you. Yeah, yes. I just looked it up real quick. The Wuzzles, you buy. Right. <laughs> oh, God. What a cast. Uh, I, I, I want to, talking about a cast, I wanted to ask quickly about, um, this might be a deep cut, but The 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, you worked on that. Did you work with Vincent Price on that at all, or did you just travel in separate circles? No, I don't think I did. Unless we were in the same episode, but recorded at different times. Yeah, That's always I think possible. I think he he did the. Um, I, the only reason I know this is because my son is a Scooby Doo fanatic, so I've seen them. But Vincent Price did. He was sort of a narrator. He like opened up each episode, talking to the audience. Well, then probably we did not work in the booth at the same time. Yeah, he probably went in and recorded all of those intros separately. Probably did them all at once, and you know I, that was it. Yeah. 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 I did. Uh, I did Scooby Dumb on that show. <laughs> oh man, that show! Cousin of Scooby Doo's. <laughs> there's too many Scooby. Yeah. There's too many Scoobies. They're all over the place. That's right. Um, all right. So let's let's get to He Man. Um, at, at what point did you become involved? Like, so when you you meant you go in for the interview, how much of the show, how much of the characters had already been designed at that point? Uh, well, I don't know how much had been designed. All I know is he showed me the cell of uh, of Skeletor, and because I saw the bony head, I pitched the voice up nasally, you know, up in here somewhere. And uh, it, it just came to me. And then uh, I know when we got uh, in to record it, I, I put in the laugh. Mm-hmm. Um and which became really iconic and so identified with it. I could tell you a couple of anecdotes about that laugh yeah, itself. Sure. Well, um, my wife and I were traveling in South America on a pleasure trip, and we were in Santiago. 
and we were in a in a uh, in a car with a guide and a driver. And the guide said to me in English, "You know, uh, uh, oh, what do you do?" I said, "I'm an actor." Oh, well, what movies have I seen you in? And uh, the driver said, "What movies?" in Spanish, mm-hmm. and she translated the movies, and it didn't translate at all. He didn't recognize them. So I said, well, ask him if he ever watched cartoons. So she said to him in Spanish, do you watch cartoons? He said, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So I went, <laughs> he almost hit the curb. He swerved so hard to the right, turning around to look at me. And the same damn thing happened in Santiago, uh, you know, in uh, Buenos Aires. Different car, different guy, different driver, same reaction. <laughs> it's understandable. I mean, that is such a recognizable uh, laugh. It's just it such is. a recognizable sound. It, it is. It is. I could be in an airport on an escalator and talk and say, <laughs> and people would turn around and say, what's Skeletor doing <laughs> What's he here? doing you know? here? Who let him in? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so the laugh was yours. I mean, when they show you the, the cell of the character, this is what he's going to look like. Did they give you any guidance or do they just say, what do you got? As I best remember it, Jamie, they just said, what What do you think yeah. would be a proper voice for this character? And it's really the, the skull head dictated to me immediately what I should do with it. Mm-hmm. Of course, as, as the show went on, it got a little more refinement and uh, there were str- certain things that I stressed based on the, the public reaction. And so... Uh, yeah, but uh, the, the the real first idea was the one that prevailed, and just refinements came as we did more of them. Yeah. I also did Merman. I know. <laughs> and Clint, and uh, uh, Cringer. And Battlecat. Yeah. And Man, and Man, Man at Arms. Arms. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, you, you mentioned Merman, so I'm going to ask about this. Was... And I and I know from having seen other interviews with you that you do that entire voice in your throat. But was there any post production done on the voices back then? Like, did, did was did they do any sort of tweaking of the sounds to make your voices sound different, or was it all one hundred percent you? No, I think it's one hundred percent me. Yeah, because Merman is in water. I just I talked through a gargle, you know. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm doing it down to you like that. Why? See? Yeah. That's all I did. And then I went, I did another character. Oh, in Transformers, I did uh, uh, Sea Spray. So I just stole from myself and used kind of the same approach to Sea Spray. (laughs) How how long did that sound take for you to get to? Because that's not a natural sound people can usually make. (laughs) You mean the merman? Yeah. Immediate. Immediate. Really? Yeah. Yeah, they showed me the drawing and he's in water. Yeah. I said, Well, okay. Water, talk like that. <laughs> Some people say, you know, you take your finger and your lips and you I never did that. Yeah. I did it all with uh, with talking through a gargle sound. And that just came naturally to you. Yeah. 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 If I try to do that like a I mean, phlegm would come up and I'd be spitting everywhere. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to sit next to you in a recording. <laughs> By the way, Mel Blanc sprayed me one time by going, suffer and succotash, you know. And I was sitting next to him and he turned his head and I got all wet. Oh, <laughs> man. 
Yeah, but it's kind of like that's all right. It's all right, right? When it's right. Mel Blanc, you you forgive it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Not everybody can say that was sprayed by Mel Blanc. <laughs> Very few people probably yeah. can. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, we're talking about his laugh and how that came from you, and and you didn't really get a whole lot of guidance um, in in terms of what he was going to sound like. But Skeletor became sort of the probably unintended from the beginning became he became kind of the comedy relief uh he had he was a very comedic villain how much of that came from you and how much came from from or the writers most of it most of it uh i don't believe it was a comedic villain in the beginning Mm -hmm. i'll tell you jamie i always look for comedy in the most tragic of circumstances and i found that's what people do um as a matter of fact, oh, God, my heroine, Elaine May, is on Broadway right now in something called the Waverly Gallery. Mm-hmm. I, I give anything to be able to see her, but I can't get to New York. If, you know, if she closes January 27th. But the reviews I've read of her, she plays a woman, 86 years old, which is her age, uh, who is going through dementia, Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And when she gets confused and and it comes tragic. She laughs at herself. Well, that's kind of what I've always seen in, in tragedy on newsreels. The place burns down and they say, well, I guess we'll just start over. Yeah. <laughs> well, damn it, that's how people survive. Gallows humor. So, yes, yes. So uh, that's why I, I put the laugh in. And... Uh, Absolutely. It, it just makes the character. It makes him. Other, otherwise, you know, it's uh, one of those uh, snarling, mustache-twirling villains. I'm not interested in that. Yeah. No, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, want, I wanted to ask a little bit about the, the process, like the actual process of recording. Did you guys, did you work together or did you, um, did you work separately? Because there was only, what's remarkable, I think, about He-Man is that there were only four or five of you who did most of those voices. That's right. That's right. Most of the time we worked together. Yeah. There was a period, I remember night when I was doing, I was doing a movie in London. So I would go over and do two days in London, fly back and do two days here, catching up on Hanna-Barbera and filmation scripts that I, they had recorded while I was out of town. That went on for six weeks, but most of the time, John Irwin, who played He-Man, mm-hmm. and I, Linda Gary, uh, we, we, uh, DiCenzo, we all work together in this small room. And it's very good. You know, you work off of somebody else, therefore your reaction uh, and your next line is truthful. It's an, an answer of the same tone that you're given. So as a matter of fact, when I would come back from being out of town and they give me the script and ask me to record the lines, I said, well, play me. <laughs> what is given before so that I can answer in kind. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. I had the same thing with, the, I was on the soap opera, the passions for three years mm-hmm. and uh, they never, the gimmick there was, they never saw my face. I was, I was like the mafia Don of the family. And uh, I recorded it sitting there. The, all the actors were on the set and I was, I was sitting in a chair with a microphone, like a radio show, but I got to answer in kind to what was going on. They weren't wild lives. So I was away a lot of the time, and the scripts would pile up maybe three or four at a time. 
and they'd bring me into the recording booth and I'd do the same thing. I said, well, play me the lead in line so I know the tone of how I should answer. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're just taking a wild shot and sure. may not make any sense. Sure. Yeah. But for, for the most part, you all recorded together. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, I also sure. I also read or I, I understand that when you played multiple characters in the same scene, you just went back and forth with the voices. You didn't do one character all the way through and then go back. Did the other actors no, do the same I, thing? No. No, most actors don't do that. They yeah. do one voice all the way through. But I, I enjoyed playing opposite myself. So <laughs> I, I would do, <laughs> my man, get out of here. Oh, you had to talk to me like that. You don't talk to me like that. That's cringer. Yeah. So I would get back and forth like that. And I, I it energized me. It energized the performance. And uh, we had great fun doing it. Yeah. How many times did you uh, did you screw it up? How many times did you have to go back and do a second take? Or were you just perfect every time? Oh, I, I never get a count, but I'm sure there were plenty. <laughs> <laughs> just like Lou Scheimer said to me, all of the, you know, the insults that he has, you royal boob and all of that stuff. You metal-munching moron. You overgrown alley cat. You pathetic pair of pitiful pinheads. Skeletor to King Randor. Skeletor to King Randor. Come in, you royal boob. Uh, Lou said to me at one time, listen, Ryan, let's record a bunch of insults here. Just <laughs> just record whatever you want. Well, I think maybe two of them got on the air. Or <laughs> they were a little too insulted. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite appropriate for 1985 uh, children's television. <laughs> Not even, no, no time <laughs> Um, really toilet humor. <laughs> I'd love to hear those recordings, though. That'd be priceless. <laughs> well, come up to my table sometime, and I'll give you. I'll give you the the ones that never made the air. <laughs> <laughs> um, keeping with the the you guys acting and re- recording your lines, I know in an effort on filmation side to to cut costs, they quote unquote recycled a lot of the animation. They would reuse a lot of the the uh, the sequences. Does that mean that you guys were primarily doing ADR? Were you recording to the scene, or were you just recording from the script? How did how did that work? We recorded from the script, like radio. Then they then they animate to what we're doing. Okay, so if they needed to reuse not, a sequence, not, they would just find one that matched. Not ADR at all. Okay, that takes forever. Yeah. That takes forever. You know, anime comes from Japan. Yeah. And I did one of those called, uh, I forget what it was called now, uh, O or something. I don't remember. Anyway, um, it's very hard to do, to do that. It takes forever to match the timing of the line to the timing of, of their lips. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, so we just, re- much easier for us to record it as a radio script and then they animate to it. Yeah. 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 Um, now, if you do a tele- if you do a television show like I did Bonanzas, and you're shooting in the western, and there's planes landing at Burbank, you have to go in and do ADR. You have to do ADR to get to re-record it. Yeah. <laughs> so I was I was always pretty good at that, but I remember one time I was doing a Bonanza ADR with uh, Dan Blocker, who played Haas. And he said to me, he said, oh, let me give you a tip. I said, well, what is it, Dan? He said, when, when, you, when you're recording outdoors, don't move your lips. It makes it easier to loop later. 
Doesn't it make it harder to talk heart. though? Do that. What? Doesn't it make it harder to talk if you can't move your lips? Hell no. Most of the actors today that you see on screen are not. They're not projecting at all. They're barely talking at all. They're not moving their lips. No, no, no. Gee, that's the style today. I bore the hell's out of me. Uh, but anyway, that's that's no. Most most actors are mumblers nowadays. You that's know. That's true. So, uh, you know, in, in t- I, I have to I have to put on headphones. I cannot understand an awful lot of acting on television. I don't. I don't know, why don't you commit, guys? What are you mumbling about? It's it's very quiet now. I have noticed that. Like the it's and it's probably yeah. there's no shows that are you know filmed in front of a live studio audience. You don't see that anymore, and you had to project in those settings because you were on a soundstage. But now it's, shows are very quiet. Yeah. No, your, your microphone is it's right over your head, or you're yeah. wearing a, a lapel mic or something, and. So you can talk like this. I remember when I first came out in the 60s, 70s, many times a sound man would say to the director, he's got to speak up a little bit. Because mm. they couldn't get you. And I, was, mic, yeah. and I was never I was never a mumbler because I worked on stage. Nowadays, the frequency, the, they're so powerful, these microphones. And the actors really don't have to do anything. They just kind of stand there and look pretty and say, <laughs> and mumble a lot. So, <laughs> When I see an actor who does, oh man, yeah, I saw Redford in in the Old Man and the Gun recently. What a pleasure! What a pleasure to watch that kind of performance. Yeah, they don't yeah. make them like they used to, right? No, they do not. <laughs> they do not. Right. How uh, you, we were talking a little bit about uh, Lou Scheimer earlier. How hands on was he? And how much how much creative freedom did he give to the actors? And in in how oh, total. Total, total. Yeah. But he would also make suggestions because he directed them too, you know. Mm-hmm. And he would say, no, 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 wait a minute, it needs more of this here, more of that. Oh, okay. But uh, otherwise, he uh, he cast you, he trusted you, and we gave him, you know, good work. But there were some times when he had to shape it a little more based on either the past or where the future was going to be of that character situation. And he was a very, very kind man, and uh, so uh, and a lot of fun. So it was, it was never critical. It was helpful. Yeah, yeah. Um, was he there? I mean, cause he. I know he did a lot of uh, voices himself. So was it, from your perspective, was it hard for him to sort of draw the line between being one of the cast and being the director and being, you know, in charge of the whole rodeo? No, he never recorded while we were there. He did it afterwards. Okay, I think I think he did Orco. Didn't he, he did he did Orco, and he did a bunch of other. I mean, he did a lot of like the minor background characters too. But Orco, I yeah, think he was did. His main one. No, he would do that after we left. No, no, he never recorded while while we were there, and he was directing it. Interesting. So, so Orco, yeah. or so in conversations. Uh, that Orko is involved, the rest of you would have been in the booth recording together, but he would have come in later to do those lines. Oh, sure. We all went home, and then uh, then the, he probably recorded it uh, pretty much after uh, after it was put together because I don't think you had to match anything that Orko's... I don't think Orko's lips... He didn't, you didn't even... Yeah, little. you couldn't see anything. Yeah, it was a hood, wasn't it? Yeah. So he could come in later and uh, with... Uh, Oh, he was a wonderful director. Uh, I'd worked with him in life. 
live television. Then he wound up at Filmation directing these things. I was so surprised. Great guy, sweet man, good man. So they would work together, I'm sure, uh, and fit Orko into the scene, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, He-Man, that show kind of uh, today is is sometimes looked back on as like the poster child for these animated series that began as basically elaborate toy commercials. Um, and I know I've talked to a few of the people involved with writing and creating that they they wanted to tell the best stories possible. They weren't there to just sell toys. But from your recollections internally, was there ever a sense that the show was, I guess, impermanent or unimportant because it was it was the, the toys were such a, a huge part of, of the show? The toys were not a part of the show when we were recording. Yeah. The toys came out afterwards. They might have been manufacturing them and all of that, designing them. But the toys had absolutely no influence on what we did or even thought about. Listen, here it is 30 years later, and I'm doing these Comic-Cons. This is a whole new career. I never thought these things would... I I got paid, went home, and was happy to have done the recording. That was the end of it for me. And, uh, And here it is 30 years later, we're... These characters are so popular, and the Comic Cons are—I've got, I got about a dozen already listed for 2019. <laughs> it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Absolutely. Wait a minute. Get rid of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know we're a telemarketer again. Okay. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> uh, well, you oh, know, let to me. It's, it's a miracle. Let me ask you about that, because I know a lot of people, especially people um, who worked on these projects decades ago that we're talking about now, they, they were it was just a job to them. You know, they'd go in, they'd take their paycheck, they'd go home. They didn't form this yeah. emotional connection to the material that many fans nowadays do. It, it, You're absolutely how, right. How is that for you? I mean, wh- wh- at the time, was He-Man just a job for you or was it more meaningful then? That was a job. That's yeah. it. I got, you know, I work it from 10 until 11.30 or 12. Oh, then I got another recording session at Tana Barbera. Or I've got a voiceover for a commercial. Or I'm in rehearsal for a play at the Mark Taper. It's a job. And that's that was, that was it. The biggest surprise was the resurrection of this. And the fans, let me tell you, Jamie, the fans that come up to me and the stories that they tell me, how... The common line is you voiced my childhood, mm-hmm. but other others were there. Um, there was a moral at the end of every episode, which I was unaware of. They inserted that afterwards. And that moral literally, literally four people have come up to me and told me how when they were six, seven, eight years old, contemplating suicide, that moral gave them the courage to go on. And they, here they are at my table. I'm telling you, it's so humbling, Jamie. Yeah. It's so humbling. It's a recording job. It's a theatrical job. You just don't know. It has a profound effect on young people. I grew up with radio. I rushed home from school to listen to radio the way people do with television now. Mm-hmm. That's why I became an actor. I found I could do voices when I was a kid. You know, So it, it's a tremendous, tremendous impact on young people. Well, I mean, thank goodness the ones that I did had a positive. <laughs> You're right, though. I mean, so here we are, thirty 
35, 37 some years later, and we're still talking about this show. I mean, why has the show and the characters endured? Like, why are they still so popular, in your opinion? Well, I think they're entertaining. They have a universal message. I think they're very, very well done. Much better than the limited animation they have today, which I'm, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of. Mm-hmm. And even, even filmations in animation was a real step back from what Disney did, which was so smooth. Mm-hmm. But even then, Lou kept all that animation in this country. He didn't ship it to Taiwan or to Japan. He wanted to hire American animators and keep it all here. And uh, the, uh, the studio was terribly grateful for that. Um, but uh, what was your question? <laughs> Why the show has remained so popular 30-some years later? Well, I think it has a un- universality to it. I do. The, 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 I know the characters are bizarre, but the problems are universal. That's why children respond. That's why the, they have the same response to the never-ending story. Yeah. It's like, it's like a Grimm's fairy tale, only, you know, not by Grimm. Yeah. Uh, the characters are, are interesting. I think that's the appeal of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the characters are, are not human. They are, but they're not. Mm-hmm. But the situations are human. The situations children can absolutely identify with. Oh, God, that's what's going on in my house right now. Right. Look, mom and dad are fighting. Oh, I hate it. You know? It's it's interesting that you mentioned the morals because you know when you think about Star Trek, you know, that show, especially the original series, was was designed to be a commentary on a social commentary on on the sixties, and you know the series that came sure. later, they did the same thing. They used the science fiction space context to tell relatable stories about humans and and, and our experiences, and. That's what the great science fiction writers did. Exactly, Bradbury, Asimov, all of them. That, that's what it. That's what it was about. Exactly, and you know, on a sure. different level, when you think about you know, He Man and the Masters of the Universe, they had these thirty-second morals tagged on the end of the episode, and I understand that when they did them, you know, the reason that those are there is because I guess the network or there was some group that thought that the shows were too violent. So they needed to have this justification for basically the show existing. So they use these morals to say, well, look, even though these characters were fighting this whole time, there is a lesson that you need to take away from this. And the show, and it, it, but they've also been, always been sort of seen as like, um, like what's the word? like corny, you know, for lack of a better word, that was the corny part of the episode. Like, oh, here's the moral. But I think it's really powerful yeah. that story you just shared. That there are people who really genuinely connected with them. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, one of the first comic cons I did in Miami, three Argentine boys came up to me, men, and uh, they told me a story. There was a moral at the end of the story: if you get separated from your parents, stay there. They'll find you. Don't wander around looking for them because you could get more lost. Right. Three Argentine men came up and one of them told me that that absolutely happened to him. They were hiking with a family in the Amazon in South America and he got separated from his family 
And he started to walk around and he remembered the moral. He stayed there. They found him two hours late. Wow. <laughs> See, that's amazing. Exactly. <laughs> Big wow. Exactly, Jamie. That's exactly right. That's amazing. And that's at, the, at the time, you know, you went in, you recorded your lines, you took your check, you went home. You, little did you know the international global impact you were having. That's right. Even to the two cabbies in South America. That's right. And hit the curb. <laughs> That's right. When was the last time you actually sat down and watched one of those original shows? Oh, a long time ago. I don't. I, I really don't watch myself at all. Yeah. Uh, I remember I was on a flight with my wife going across country here, and we're at thirty-five thousand feet, and the movie that they're showing is with Richard Pryor called moving. Okay. And I had a partner and I said to her, Oh my God, I was, I was terrible in this. I was such a ham in it, but I'm at 35,000 feet. I can't walk out. Yeah. What are you going to do? (laughs) I watched the movie and I said to her, geez, I was funny in that, you know, (laughs) time, time heals all wounds. (laughs) So I guess so. I looked at it. I said, that was pretty good. What? (laughs) But normally you can't watch yourself. Huh? No. Yeah. Too critical. No. I, I can after a long time, after years, I I can watch it. I have a little objectivity about it. Yeah. It's not like I just did it and it's going on the air and I'll never work again. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, the reason I asked about whether you know when the last time you had watched one of the episodes was because I was I was curious whether you thought you know if you were being a hundred percent honest whether they still hold up for today. Well, I'm sure they do because these people come to the Comic-Cons and they bring their children yeah. and they're showing them the DVD of it. Yeah. And it's, it's absolutely they're they're involved and they will leave it and getting involved. Yeah. We're involved when we're recording it. We're not we're not hamming it up. We yeah. we're taking these parts for real and doing them for real. We believe it. And if you believe it when you do it, that's called good acting, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it holds up. It holds up. Yeah. So does bad acting hold up? And it, you want to walk out at fifty-five thousand. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, we le- we are living in the age of the reboot. Everything from the '80s, you know, or the '70s or the early '90s is ripe for picking. And She-Ra just got new life. There's a new show on Netflix. Um, and <clears throat> if He-Man were to return, would you be interested in having a part of that? Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen I know it? they made a movie of it. They yep. made a movie of it. It doesn't work in a movie, you know. <laughs> uh, and I understand they're doing it again. Well, it won't work a second time. Hollywood doesn't learn lessons very well. No, the producers. Let's do it. We'll make a lot of money. If it's successful. No, we don't care. We get our money up front. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But um, um, uh, if they do, uh, if they do ever make a, a remake of the of the series, uh, I would certainly hope they would use John Irwin and and me. Uh, but I don't, I don't know that that's going to happen. Yeah, I just yeah. don't. Know. Do you still keep in touch with John Irwin? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, we talk all the time. Is Eat he... each other for lunch sometimes? Oh, that's fantastic. Does he does he ever um, 
I know he's a very private reclusive man, but does he ever sort of like hint to you be like, uh, maybe I should go to one of these conventions and see what it's like. I cannot convince him to come. Yeah. I can't. He's very shy. Yeah. His thing is, his thing is, well, you know, I don't look anything like he man. I said, no shit. And I don't look like Skeletor and, and Reeves didn't look like Superman and nobody expects you to. Well, I'm not going. I don't. I know you like it, but I'm not going. <laughs> I cannot. At one point, he said to me, "If you ever mention that again to me, I'll never talk to you." Oh again. no. <laughs> well, he did. He's, he's okay. He called me recently. We chatted, but uh, he just—he's a very shy man. Sure. And sure. and he—he's uh, not interested in. He would be uncomfortable meeting the public in that way. Yeah. 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 For him, so I have to respect. Yeah. It still was just a job, right? Yeah, but it, it was meaningful. Yeah. It's meaningful. This whole thing of the Comic Cons and meeting people outside of the outside of the work area, there aren't a lot of people who are comfortable doing that. I know I was terribly uncomfortable the first time. Mm-hmm. Then at the second time I said, Jesus, this is good. I love this. Mm-hmm. Now I really I look forward to it. Day after tomorrow, I go to Louisville, and I'm looking forward to it. I just love doing meeting the people. Yeah, I really do. Yeah, but you're right. I think it does take a certain personality to be able to just constantly be at the center of attention and 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 hear all those stories. Some people could be very put off by that. I think. Well, I guess a lot of people. I don't. Maybe some people think. Uh, uh, that the fan is expecting some kind of an answer. I just talk to them like yeah. they're old friends and we're sitting having a cup of coffee. Or, But I hear stories, like I told you, about people and how mm-hmm. voice their childhood. I hear stories that are very moving. And uh, I have, I'm absolutely absorbed by it and respect it, you know. It's got to be incredibly gratifying, right? To hear those stories and how much of an impact you had. Yes, it is. It's a big surprise. And I've hugged a lot of people. (laughs) Consolation. And believe me, it's, uh, it's quite an experience, really, Jamie. This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. Take care.